Hello there, this is Dr. Daniel Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. It is the 31st of December 2019, and that makes it New Year's Eve, the night before the new day, which will bring us 2020 and a whole new decade, uh, the third decade of the 21st century. So I'm going to get started uh, on this arc that I've been covering for the last couple of episodes, including uh, we're moving in now to a very specific discussion of autoimmune diseases. And we're going to get down into the molecular level of it often in this current uh, podcast segment, but also in the next one I do. After that, we're going to go back to a video lecture and we're going to put together all of this material and do a straight line diet event ontological perspective of autoimmune diseases and neuropsychiatric disease, which is what I wanted to get to eventually. So that's where we are right now. And uh, we're at that level of um, still finishing off some of the generalizations of the immune response and then getting into the particulars. So recall that there was a paper published in Clinical and Experimental Rheumatology in 2019, which was a one-year review of systemic lupus erythematosus. And in that paper, uh, summarizing it, the production of autoantibodies in SLE patients, lupus patients, is interrelated to dysregulated T follicular helper cell differentiation. Stem cell-like memory T cells uh, can be the source of those differentiated follicular helper cells in uh, lupus patients. But it's not clear what triggers that follicular T cell response. But there's likely a role for cytochrome interleukin-27, since in a murine model that is studying an atherogenic environment, we get the induction of a release of interleukin-27 from dendritic cells, and of course, a toll-like receptor, TLR4-dependent manner. And, that blo- and when you blockade that pathway, you decrease T follicular helper cell responses. So it looks like it's an interleukin-27 going through a toll-like receptor. Uh, from dendritic cells that then turns on the activation of these follicular cells. So in a bioenergetics perspective, lupus-prone inhibition of glycolysis reduced the expansion of autoreactive T follicular helper cells, and based on crosstalk between the B and T cell population, which is, of course, how B cells are activated by the T cells, the absence of a particular protein called galactin-3, which we talked about a lot last time, in the mouse model, cause an excess of interferon gamma, so absence of galactin-3, excess of interferon gamma, inversely related, which then raised aberrant germinal center formation, and then ultimately from those B cells turning into plasma cells, autoantibody production. So I want you to get familiarized with an understanding that we're talking about how T cell, how the innate immune response communicates to the T cell via uh, antigen-associated presentation, and then that T-cell can go on, depending on what subspecies of T-cell we're talking about, and activate and trigger a B-cell response. And that B-cell response is usually an an antibody, and that antibody, if it's a plasma cell generating antibody, and it's to a self-antigen, that's how you get autoimmune disease, okay? That's short-form discussion. Now, continuing with this, synopsis from this paper from 2019, a subset of B cells 
co-expressing two different chains, heavy or light IG, which is a dual antibody autoreactive BCR or B2R cell. Those tend to be implicated in lupus. A T-cell dependent signal and an innate stimulus, such as interleukin 21 or 27, as we just mentioned, and including type 1 and type 2 interferons, and of course, TOLAC receptors, whose agonists um, trigger TLRs 7 through 9, all play a key role in the activation, the expansion, and the effector function of these unique B cells, these B2R cells, in the murine model of lupus, okay? They were still in the animal model discussion right here. In addition to secreting antibodies, those lupus-specific B2R cells express much higher levels of major histocompatibility complex 2 on the surface, and additional surface receptors were also found to be important for cognate engagement with the T cells. Among those co-receptors, when you have a deficiency in interleukin-21 receptor, which is stimulated, of course, by interleukin-21, which is a T-cell-derived soluble cytokine implicating the generation of germinal center B cells, which is where we are, remember. And it's also involved in Ig class switching in plasma cells. All of that reduced the frequency of B2R cells, indicating their enhanced dependency of that interleukin-21 pathway for the maturation. So, we can say the immunological dimensions of lupus are paramount and include lymphocytic activation, transduction, and cascadia. Another lupus-associated B cell that expresses a CD11C called the TBET plus B cells are antigen experience cells that are expanded in a cohort of over 200 lupus patients now that have been studied. And the degree of that expansion of that particular B cell population with a CD11C it's got the transcription factor Tbet, okay, in lupus. The degree of that expansion of those cell lineages correlated with lupus severity. Moreover, interleukin 21 potently induced that transcription factor Tbet plus B cell lineage, promoting the differentiation into immunoglobulin secreting autoreactive plasma cells. Now, those are all derived from that germinal center B cell lineage, which I've already been talking about. The growing importance of interleukin 21 as a pathogenic factor coming from T cells, as a pathogenic factor implicated in lupus, is provided for by the role of the blockade of a T regulatory cell autophagy differentiation and function through the activation of mTOR complexes, both one and two. The same study four weeks of rapamycin, which of course binds to the mTOR, four weeks of rapamycin treatment reverted these effects, including in, uh, finally inducing autophagy. And when you induced autophagy, you restored Treg cell function. Now remember, when you turn up Tregs, you're going to drop autoimmune response, right? Because Tregs control T-cell helper activation. They tend, they of course, tune that down, therefore they can't activate the B cells. Paper published in Autoimmunity in 2012, the August issue 45, page 333, the 347, uh, tells us the following, a background of this. Within the B cell follicle of secondary lymphoid organs, 
there's a germinal center, what we call a GC, which produces a high-affinity antibody-secreting plasma cell and a memory B cell necessary for the host's defense against any invading pathogen. So this again comes from my autoimmunity paper some seven years ago now. I'm giving you background on these B cells from these germinal centers. So you get that. B cell follicle from secondary lymphoid organs, germinal center. This process of GC formation, germinal center formation, is reliant on the activation of antigen-specific B cells by the T cells, as we were talking about, capable of recognizing epitopes of the same antigenic complex that it started with. The unique architecture of secondary lymphoid organs actually facilitates, that is, the, the actual structure of the organ, facilitates the initial germinal center event through a placement of a large, clonally diverse B-cell follicular um, set near equally diverse T-cell metabolic zones. Antigen-activated B-cells then receive proper differentiation signals at the T-cell border of the B-cell follicle and initiate an early germinal center B-cell transcriptional profile. This is simple signal transduction between the T-cell and the B-cell. And it migrates then to the follicular dendritic cell network, so it's called FDCs, within the B-cell follicle, and then that seeds the germinal center reaction, making these autoantibody-producing B-cells. Peripheral to the FDC, remember that's the follicular dendritic cell network, the germinal center B-cells rapidly divide and undergo somatic hypermutation, of course, of their Ig variable domain. And the newly formed germinal center B-cell clones made from that hypermutation then migrate to the germinal center light zone where they compete for antigen and secondary signals presented by the follicular um, uh, dendritic cells. And a specialized set now coming in of naive CD4 positive T cells. And those naive CD4 positive T cells are the ones we've mentioned already, the T, because they're in the follicle, T follicular helper cells, TFHs. So survival, proliferative and differentiation signals delivered by the mature follicular dendritic cells and in association with the T follicular helper cells combined to initiate a transcriptional program that determine if the germinal cell B cells being made become either memory cells or terminally differentiated plasma cells, which are going to be producing the antibody. To prevent any oncogenic transformation and or escape of an autoreactive clone, of course, there are several regulatory mechanisms that restrict that germinal cell B cell proliferation, maturation, and indeed survival. And so this is where you have to be very, the, the system has to be very careful to generate what could become an autoimmune hyperinflammatory response. That's why you have, that's why that oncogenic transformation can lead to that. Okay. There's any mutation related to this germinal center. That's where you might get runaway autoimmune hyperinflammation. It's indeed what happens. So just to remind you, this is something we've covered before, and uh, I, I'm just doing it again to, to keep you on the same track as we get through this. A CD8 T cell will make, in the presence of interleukin 12, the transcription factors Tbet and BLIMP1. And that will become a cytotoxic T cell. And in the presence of interferon gamma, will give a Th1 inflammatory response, which uses, of course, cytokines, CHCL9 and 10, 
and also the receptor 3 for that and all the ligands associated with it. So the CD8 cell in the presence of interleukin-12 with the increasing Tbet as a transcription factor is going to become a cytotoxic T cell, T lymphocyte. Now CD4, a naive CD4 T cell in that germinal center, again in the presence of interleukin-12, is going to make, again, more transcription factor Tbet. It's going to have the CXC receptor 3 on its surface now. That's going to become a, a, a regular Th1 type cell. And in the presence, again, of interferon gamma, it's going to give you a Th1 inflammatory response. The same naive cell in the presence of not just interleukin-12, but interleukin-6, will make Tbet, but will also make the transcription factor BCL6. And that will become the T follicular helper cell. Now, that then will take a germinal center B cell, and in the presence of that interleukin-21 we've been talking about, and, and some interferon gamma, which is throughout all of this activation system, you're going to now make a B cell, a germinal, germinal center B cell, which is going to be expressing BCL6, and it's going to have an IgG2A as its surface immunoglobulin. That will go on to form a plasma cell making free soluble IgG, which will then become potentially an autoantibody. It's going to be expressing a fair amount of Tbet as a transcription factor and also quite a bit of the other transcription factor, BLIMP1. Now, just to keep uh, you, uh, in track, the T regulatory cell, which normally expresses a transcription factor called FOXP3, again in the presence now of interleukin 27, will make a fully active FOXP3 Tbet expressing those two transcription factors, FOXP3 and Tbet, with that CXCR3, that receptor on its surface, and that's going to block all these immune responses, CD8, CD4, as well as what I did not mention because it uses the Roar Gamma T, the TH17 cell lineage, a T regulatory cell in full approximation within interleukin 27 and, and then expressing the two transcription factors are going to turn on its metabolic pathway, which includes an autophagic response, remember, will then ultimately block that whole TH1 response. So T follicular helpful cells are a specialized set of CD4 positive T cells, and they were actually first uh, identified in that lymphoid organ called the tonsil. Um, there, it was shown they play a critical role in protective immunity, and they help B cells, they activate B cells and produce antibody against many different types of foreign pathogens. So the T follicular helper cells are located in that secondary lymphoid organ or slows. And that, of course, includes the tonsil, but of course, the spleen and many lymph nodes. All of that information was published in Trends in Immunology Review, <coughs> Volume 38, Issue 4, pages 287 and on, going back in April of 2017. So that was your background. Now, you also have something called innate lymphoid cells that I want to remind you of. They originate from a common innate lymphoid cell progenitor. However, transcriptional program that sets the identity of those innate lymphoid cells, ILCs, remains somewhat elusive. And, but it was shown that a transcription factor called infill 3 acts downstream from a the cytokine interleukin-7 signaling pathway, and that may regulate the emergence of these common uh, innate lymphoid cell progenitors via a direct regulation of a protein called ID2, okay? So ID2 
I know this is a lot of information, but I know you're listening to Authentic Biochemistry, so you're well aware that's what we're going to do here. ID2 is indeed a transcriptional regulator. Uh, although it lacks this basic DNA binding domain that many of them do, but it negatively regulates the basic helix loop helix, that's the BHLH transcription factor, by forming a heterodimer. And when it does, that inhibits their DNA binding and overall transcriptional activity. So it's implicated in regulating a variety of cellular processes, these ID2 transcription regulators. What are those processes? Growth, senescence, differentiation, apoptosis, really important here for autoimmunity, angiogenesis, and in fact, even neoplastic transformation. So this IDD2 inhibits, when, it, when it's expressed at high levels, skeletal muscle and cardiac myocyte differentiation. It also has been implicated in regulating circadian clock by repressing a transcriptional activating activity of the clock, arntal, BMAL1 heterodimer systems, and it also restricts the clock localization to the cytoplasm, the clock gene with that arntal BML1, um, switching one heterodimer to another. And it plays a role in both the input and output pathways of a circadian clock. In the input component, it's involved in modulating the magnitude of photic entrainment. And then the output component, it actually contributes to the regulation of a variety of liver clock genes involved in lipid metabolism. So lipid metabolism is also controlled. There. So it's all very interesting. That's all about ID2. Now, back to this infill 3, cell intrinsic infill 3 ablation as a transcription factor located here. In impaired development of ILC subset, when that happens, it leads to a loss of common helper-like innate lymphoid cell progenitors. So the common helper-like ILCs are called CHILPs, C-H-I-L-Ps. So that means that infill 3 is controlled by a mesokine-derived interleukin-7 pathway in all those lymphoid precursors. And in the infill 3, that transcription factor reserves its function in those common helper um, innate lymphoid cell lineages by a direct regulation of that ID2 that we just talked about, that unusual transcriptional regulator which is a negative one, okay? I would just want you to keep in mind how this is all being controlled and that you have innate lymphoid cells also playing a major role here ultimately in not only neoplastic events, but also in muscle differentiation, in clock-regulated uh, genes, such as the photic response and lipid metabolism during a sleep-wake cycle, and then also, most importantly right here, in potentiating a uh, trigger for autoimmune disease, okay? So these are all players in that field. So if you have a deficiency in that ID2, or indeed it's uh, conjoiner ID3, that results in a direct loss of distinct CD8 effector cells, helper cells, and indeed in memory populations. Uh, this was published back in Nature Immunology back in 2011, in November of that year. So the wild-type Treg cell, making a lot of FOXP3, which is its transcription factor, ID3 will block the T-cell stimulation, uh, and that will then uh, give you a lot of FOXP3. That FOXP3 then, in the wild-type system, will maintain control over effective T-cells. But then when you have an ID2 or ID3 minus Treg cell, when it's tanked, then you're going to turn on this E47 pathway, which is going to work through this other protein called SOX3, which I talked about before. All that's going to cook down 
the transcription factor FOXP3 in those T regulatory cells, and then that's not going to block the effector T cell. If you don't block the effector T cell, what you then get is the potentiation of the T follicular cell pathway leading to autoantibody production from those plasma cells. And that was all published in a cell reports paper back in December of 2016. That is actually volume 17, page 2827 and ongoing. One more paper I want to remind you of is a cell paper published in September of 2011, cell 146, that's the uh, volume, that showed that nuclear receptors that bind DNA as a monomer to the retinoic acid response elements, the ROR elements in the DNA, actually contain a single core motif half site, which is a 5 prime AGG TCA 3 prime, and then that's preceded by a short AT-rich sequence. It's a key regulator of cellular differentiation, immunity, peripheral circadian rhythm, as well as, here you go, the lipid pathways, acyl and prenal lipids, also xenobiotic metabolism and glucose metabolism. And all that can be found published in several papers in PubMed, but I won't give you the citations now. Now, this nuclear receptor that binds this DNA is considered to have intrinsic transcriptional activity, and it may have some natural ligands, like indeed oxysterols, that act as agonists, one of them being 25-hydroxycholesterol, or as inverse agonists, which is the seven oxygenated sterols. And all that enhances or represses, respectively, the transcriptional machinery of those pathways, ultimately recruiting distinct combination of cofactors to target genes regulatory regions, and it modulates all the transcriptional expression depending on the tissue, the time, and the promoter context. And this is all can be working through interleukin-6 in hypoxia, increase in reactive oxygen, increase not only in ROS, but also in nitric oxide. You can also get increases in the TCA cyclinomediates fumarate or succinate in the presence of hypoxia-inducible factor 1 and Treg cells then. You're going to get a prevention of Treg differentiation. When you have a lot of HIF-1, it's going to block all of that FOXP3 uh, activity, which you remember is the uh, canonical transcription factor for Tregs. In fact, it'll set up FOXP3 for degradation via the proteasome. In TH17 cells, HIP3 has something different. It, it, it activates the ROR gamma T pathway that's going to kick up TH17 cell secretion of interleukin 17, and that's going to promote then TH17, T helper cell 17 differentiation. And that's going to lead to more inflammation and potentiation for autoinflammation. So you see the way all these transcription factors come in, uh, start to rule the roost depending on what cell types and over what time frame you're talking about. Now, the paper published in Experimental Molecular Medicine in 2019 talks about nuclear, inter, nuclear factor interleukin 3, that infill one, which is also known as E4BP4. And that's actually a repressor of a lot of genes where infill 3 contains a basic leucine liver domain that binds the DNA. Um, infill 3 represses genes by recruiting, now listen to this, histone deacetylase 2 and another uh, protein called G9A histone methyltransferase. Okay? All of those regulate diverse biological functions. Those are epigenetic phenomena. But what are those diverse functions controlled by the uh, histone deacetylase and by the methyltransferase? Such things as circadian rhythm, cell viability, mobility, and motility, and of course, hepatic metabolism. That's how it's linked up to lipid metabolism. In immune cells, in fact, infill 3 plays a key role in the B-cell IgE class switching, 
and the development of a natural killer cell lineage, natural killer cells. Infil-3 also binds to the large uh, IgE promoter, and it stimulates immunoglobulin E production, for example, in other certain kinds of autoimmune disorders like asthma. Infil-3 deficient mice also show dramatic natural killer cell loss due to the influence of that particular factor in natural killer cell development, uh, maturation, and function. Furthermore, Infil-3 links the circadian rhythm with immune cell development. It does so by suppressing actually the TH17 determining factor that we've been talking about off and on for several episodes. That's the ROAR gamma T, retinoic acid um, uh, gamma T uh, pathway or orphan receptor gamma T. So from all of that, you can see that infill 3 directly controls Treg activation. And if you study it via knockout overexpression, you're going to get some ideas on how, how that's contained and how that's controlled. In fact, infill 3 induces, I mean, excuse me, reduces FOXP3 gene expression by binding its promoter. And those two, th- those three regions, those non-coding sequences, one through three, and it physically interacts with FOXP3 protein also and, and tends to knock it out. We talked about this before. All right. So in the lupus paper of 2017, we're going to finish here today. You can ask this question. Is there a link with clinical and renal disease uh, activity and circulating sphingolipids in patients with systemic lupus? It seems that circulating uh, sphingolipids, circulating sphingolipids, from the ceramide class, which are known normally as causing apoptosis in cells. So circulating sphingolipids of the ceramide and hexocele ceramide class families are increased, and the sphingoid bases, which are which are non-ceramide, but like for things like sphingosine 1-phosphate, those are decreased in lupus patients. In fact, the ratio of the C16 ceramide to sphingosine 1-phosphate is the best discriminator between lupus and healthy patients. The levels of that ceramide uh, and hexocele ceramide um, uh, structures were able to discriminate patients with current versus an inactive or no renal involvement in their lupus. And then all dysregulated sphingolipid metabolism were normalized in this, in this paper. This is a lupus 2017 paper from September, pages 1023 to 1033. All dysregulated sphingolipids were normalized after looking at immunosuppressive treatment. Therefore, it looks like sphingolipid metabolism is actually dysregulated in lupus. And that's where we're going to uh, leap off now to. We're going to start talking, we're going to move away from those transcription factors and those proteins and just talking about cellular activity. And what I want to ultimately do now is get into discussion of what's going on inside those cells and what indeed regulates, okay, what, what regulates the um, activation of the T cell lineages, one of which, uh, the major lineage pathway, this, like the T follicular helper cells, which is going to activate those B cells and the T bet population of those B cells so that you then become an autoantibody producing B plasma cell which can then lead to auto-inflammatory disease such as lupus. So we've talked about now how the different cells interact. We've talked about the transcription factors like Tbet and NFIL3 and FOXB3, right? 
and Rory Gamma T, those are transcription factors. We talked a little bit about which genes are turned on previously, like the cyto particular cytokine pathways, which are paradigmatic to different T cell lineages, right? Like TH17 makes uh, interleukin 17, uh, for example. We talked about that. Now we're going to get into how cell fate is controlled via sphingolipid metabolism. And then that's going to give us the finishing touches on how we're going to start the video lectures um, uh, sensu stricto about autoimmune disease. This is Dr. Dan Guerra wishing you a very happy 2020 New Year. And this is me signing off from Authentic Biochemistry. Goodbye for now. <laughs>